Welcome to episode number 93 of the Sleep Whisperer podcast. As a functional medicine MD, Dr. Peter Kozlowski uses a broad array of tools to find the source of the body's dysfunction. He trained in the clinics with leaders in his field, including Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Deepak Chopra, and Dr. Susan Blum. His recently published book, Unfunk Your Cut, encapsulate his collaborative, patient-first healthcare approach in true research-based conversational style. Overall, Dr. Cause inspires us off the internet to seek and find real answers to what's going on within my health and empowers readers with practical strategies and delicious recipes to achieve true balance of body, mind and spirit. His expertise is in gut health but he also works daily with food sensitivities, hormonal imbalances, detoxing from toxic chemicals, and most importantly, mental, emotional and spiritual health. We've done several episodes on gut health and sleep since it's such a key area. In this episode, we go specifically into the low FODMAP diet, how it should be done the right way, intermittent fasting and whether the elimination diet is effective. If you have had a food sensitivity test and found yourself sensitive to several foods, you must take a listen to this episode. Here's a 5-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts titled Valuable Sleep and Dream Information. Great podcast to listen to at any time of the day and before going to bed. My favorite is also all the meditations provided here great variety of topics. I hope you are listening to the meditations yourself. Recently, my friend Drew Purohit, host of the Drew Purohit podcast, asked me to send him a few of my very favorite meditations and he loved them and asked me to make sure that I keep doing them. I am now going to invite you to leave the show a 5-star rating and review as soon as you finish listening to this episode. Hey everyone, I'm Deepa, Light Functional Medicine Practitioner, author in New Guinea and you're listening to the Sleep Whisperer podcast, the only sleep podcast with conversations and meditations. I'm on a mission to share profoundly insightful sleep conversations with global visionaries that merge together functional medicine and ancient wisdom. Breathe in bliss through weekly guided meditations and let yourself enter the land of dreams. Together, let's unravel the pieces, get to the roots and understand the right tools to transform your sleep completely. Through this podcast, I want you to dream the best version of yourself. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey. Dr. Koz, welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. And your book has a very interesting title as well, Unfunk Your Gut. So I'd love to title our episode, Unfunk Your Gut for Better Sleep. 
uh, and we've done an episode on gut health before, but I think we will be speaking a lot more into specifics, especially intermittent fasting and the low FODMAP diet, which uh, I'll share a little bit about with you later as to what are the misconceptions that are going around regarding the low FODMAP diet. And I'm actually very curious to read your book, just seeing the title. The title was so interesting. So first of all, of of course, the show itself is the intersection between functional medicine and Eastern ancient wisdom. So we have both sides of this come uh, guest coming from the functional world as well as from Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, Eastern perspective. So We've actually not had anyone give us a little bit of a gist on how is functional medicine different. So it would be great if you could get started by just telling our listeners about that. And of course, what got you into the field of focused gut health? So, yeah, it's I, I was trained as a regular medical doctor, I'm a general practice, family practice, and just kind of by luck, I got into functional medicine. But the way that I describe the difference between the two in regular medicine, I was taught how to listen to your symptoms and then decide what pills to give you to feel better, right? And so what, what medication are you missing that I need to give you that make you feel better? In functional medicine, I was taught to think about, to listen to you and think about why did disease happen? When did disease happen? What's keeping you sick? And so it, it's getting at, as we say, the underlying cause. Why, why is someone have eczema? Why does someone have insomnia? Why does someone have gut issues or abdominal pain or rheumatoid arthritis um, or high blood pressure? And the analogy I really like is that we're all born with a bucket and we fill that bucket with bad food, with toxins, with stress, lead and mercury from our environment, um, poor gut health, antibiotics, antidepressants, all these different things are filling our buckets up. And eventually your bucket overflows and you have disease, right? And the disease can present differently in everybody. But once your bucket has overflowed of inflammation, then that's usually when it happens. So functional medicine to me is emptying that bucket. And what brought you into this focus of gut health, which and writing this book where you focused on the gut itself? So Hippocrates told us the answer 3000 years ago. Hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut. And basically, since he said that we've gone the complete opposite direction, everything we're doing is damaging our guts, whether it's babies being born by C-section, not breastfeeding, giving antibiotics at an early age, um, eating a diet that's high in sugar and low in fibers. Um, eating a lot of processed foods um, and antidepressants, all these things are damaging our gut and it's creating disease. So in 
functional medicine training right from the beginning, they kind of just tell you over and over again, start with the gut, start with the gut, start with the gut. And so when I went into practice on my own, that's what I did. Um, and I just learned to almost always start with the gut. And, and we just started seeing incredible results and in people healing from diseases you didn't think you could heal from. Um, so, but I think that the biggest, one of the biggest things I like to talk about the gut is why, right? Why is it, why is disease begin there? The biggest thing I like to teach about the gut is its most important job is to decide what comes into our body and what stays out. The inside of your gut is actually considered outside of your body. So when I say gut, I mean the long tube that starts with the mouth and ends with the anus made of the mouth, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine. There's openings on both ends. So when you put something into your mouth, the gut's job is to decide, is this something good? And should I let it into my body? Or is this something bad and I should keep it out? So a lot of people have heard that term leaky gut. That's what leaky gut is, is when you've lost that barrier. And then anything that's going into your body, into your gut can get into your blood. And a lot of those things can be inflammatory. So it's just not the way it works, just like the skin, right? But people will wash their hands 10 times a day, but then they'll throw anything in their mouth into their gut tube. Well, the skin is very thick. The gut is not, it's very, very thin. So it's very easy for things to get into your body. And then once it's, once that negative toxin, bad food, whatever crosses into your bloodstream, now it's in your bloodstream. And what happens with your blood? It goes everywhere from your head to your toes. So that's why like I can work with a patient with autism or rheumatoid arthritis or eczema or migraines and they don't have any gut symptoms, but we still find issues in their gut that are creating systemic disease. So the reason I, I wrote my book about gut health to answer your question um, is because that's what I was taught. And that's what I've learned throughout the years of my practice is the gut is, is usually the culprit in most people. And on that note, Dr. Koswe, you did mention about the gut. So I must ask you this, a lot of people do these food sensitivity tests and they come out with huge lists of food that they are got this negative response to. And they believe that the answer is to just remove all those foods for life and throw them out. Or some of them have this belief that you need to repeat it every six months. And based on what shows up, then not even eat those foods for the next six months, but what's excess food sensitivities actually telling that person? Obviously, there's so, so much going on in their gut, so I'd love for you to break that down because I don't think the answer is to just willy-nilly remove more and more foods and just make your diet more and more restrictive. I 100% agree. And so I've been in functional medicine for 10 years and I I've never ordered a food sensitivity test. Um, they are not reliable. They're not accurate. And for the majority of people, there's a lot of people in my field that do order those tests, 
And I've had a lot of patients come to me with like, you know, they're only eating four things or six things because their food sensitivity panel said they were reacting to everything. And what a food sensitivity test is, is actually a test for leaky gut. Because typically when someone's food sensitivity test comes back, it's, it's basically like a log of what they've been eating for the last three months. And so if your barrier in your gut is lost, then everything that you're eating is getting into your blood at higher quantities, bigger quantities than your body's prepared to deal with. So your body creates this low level reaction. And then that's what they catch on this food sensitivity test. So I, I've, I feel like I'm anybody that's usually done that testing, I'm, I'm helping them like reassure them that, you know, you're probably not even sensitive to that food and eat it again. And you, you, we, I just don't believe we can trust those results. So I do very much believe in food sensitivities. Um, but the way that I test for them is through a 21 day elimination diet with reintroduction. So we can pick the top three foods, the top six foods, the top 12 foods, cut them out for 21 days, and then add them back in one by one using a tracking journal. And the, when I first heard about this, I was like, why is an elimination diet 21 days? Like, where did they make up that number from? Well, everything in your body has a half-life. That's how long it takes us to clear things. So that's if you drink alcohol, if you smoke tobacco, if you, um, your hormones, toxins like lead and mercury, um, prescription medications. That's why some are taken four times a day. Some are once a month. There's a different amount of time to clear them from our body. When your body creates a sensitivity to food, it creates IgG antibodies. IgG antibodies have a half-life of 21 days. Mm -hmm. So if I re, and then, so the big problem with these sensitivities, people will never know they're sensitive to a food because the reaction is delayed hours to days after eating the food. So I could eat bread every day for breakfast and I feel great, but I've got chronic skin issues or I've got chronic migraines. Or I've got depression and I go to my doctor and I get a pill for this. I get a pill for that. I get a pill for the third thing. And I keep eating the bread every day for breakfast. And I, I don't know that that's what keeping me sick. And so food sensitivities, I mean, I work with them a lot and, and they're just very difficult because you can't trust the testing and someone will not know just by like, oh yeah, I had uh, ice cream. And I feel bad afterwards. Most people, that's not how it's presented. And I think Dr. Koss, sometimes I've also found that people choose to remove foods, which they just don't like. And sometimes they have some excuse to keep eating foods that they have personal uh, favorites of and where they just make excuses that I'm not actually sensitive to it. I don't get, I ate bread yesterday and I'm totally fine. So what you said was totally right because that's something I see a lot as well where people decide on what they want to eliminate really. 
And I really loved your explanation about the 21 day and why 21 days, because I've not heard that before. So I think that's something really new for our listeners. Um, but I'd love to also jump into, you said a reintroduce and are there certain foods that would be a non-negotiable and perhaps never reintroduced or uh, is it that everything is reintroduced? Because I'd love some insight about that as well. So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I believe in reintroducing all the foods. And, but I've had patients that come to me and they're like, I haven't had gluten in seven years. I don't plan on ever eating again, eating it again. And I'm like, well, that's fine. Like we're not going to reintroduce that. Right. Um, but for the majority of people, they don't want to stay gluten, dairy, soy, corn free for the rest of their lives. Right. And so when you do that reintroduction, then you have the knowledge like, Hey, I react to dairy. So if I want to go out and have yogurt, I'm going to have problems. At least I know that I'm making a conscious decision with the information. I don't care that I react to this. I want it. So it, I just think it's very difficult in our society to live totally gluten, dairy, soy, corn free, all these things that I'd rather have my patients reintroduce the food unless, you know, it's celiac disease, or again, it's some kind of, um, other reason why they're not eating the food, then I'm going to say, forget it. But for the majority of people, I do think I would like them to reintroduce it just so they know. I love that, Dr. Cause. And um, so intermittent fasting, extended fasting, water fasting, dry fasting, fasting is so popular today suddenly, but of course it's a big part of ancient traditions. And I mean, I think a lot of cultures have been including several forms of fasting, never stopped really. Uh, but maybe sometimes today people jump into it too soon or, uh, you know, they just suddenly next day going from a not fasting to an 18 hour fast because someone's telling them to, or maybe they're suddenly trying an extended fast without adapting the body. I'd love to know what is the right way to introduce fasting and how is it beneficial to gut health as well? And is there a difference you perceive between intermittent fasting and extended fasting in terms of benefits to the gut? Yeah, it's a, definitely a good topic to talk about. Um, and I, so I, I give a whole outline in my book of the strategy that I recommend people to follow to start intermittent fasting. But what I would, I mean, and, and I never wanted to do it myself. I love to eat. So when I heard about fasting, I was like, screw this. I'm not doing this. Like, <laughs> I, I like to eat way too much. And it took me a long time to get convinced to do it. And one of the reasons I didn't feel very strongly about doing it is I had a lot of patients that tried it either before me or while working with me. And I didn't really see any great results. I didn't really see anything that I'm like, oh yeah, that's worth it. Like, but the big thing that I learned a couple of years ago 
I was telling people to do 16 hour fasts. So I, the way I would recommend it is like 12 hours every day with like 16 hours, two or three times a week. And the reason I wasn't seeing results is because that's not long enough. And the whole point of fasting is gluconeogenesis, right? Where we are using, because we're not putting any energy into our body, our body is looking for energy. So we have energy stored in our tissues and fat. And so if there's no food coming in, our body's like, okay, we got to get to work and make some energy to get through the day. And so when we start doing that, we start using up all this excess that we've put on our bodies. And that is a great thing because most of us are, you know, have excess, right? We, we've um, had excess. And so using that up is a, is a great way to heal your body. And the majority of people are doing fasting for weight loss. I, I don't, I don't do it for weight loss. I do, um, I do it for hormones, for my testosterone, for my growth hormone, um, keep my insulin healthy. So I, that's the reason that I do it. Um, but so I like people to do 24 hours, 24 to 36 hours, twice a week. Sometimes three times. That's exactly what I do. So I'm so, I feel validated that you said that. (laughs) That's what the research says. I mean, it's 16 hours is just not enough. That gluconeogenesis doesn't really start happening till hour number 20. So um, you need to make it till, you know, till at least 24. And so I started doing it. I do it on Mondays and Fridays now. Um, dinner is on Sunday. I eat early and then I won't eat again till Monday at dinner time. Um, Thursday dinner, and then I don't eat all day Friday until dinner time on Friday. And those are my two days. And it, it, I, the thing that I, I like for people that haven't done it, that want to do it, I'm like, do not start with 24 hours. Don't start with 36 hours. When I started it, I just focused on 12 and I, I did 12 naturally anyway. So that wasn't a problem. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to try 16. So I did 16 hours for two or three weeks, found it. I was like, okay, I'm ready to go longer. So the next time I did 24 and the more I do it, I mean, I, I'm not perfect with it because sometimes with travel or I don't know, just things get in the way, but the more consistently I do it, the easier it is. And so for me, as much as I love to eat, I know that if I can do it, that anybody could do it. Um, and it just takes, you know, you have to go at your own pace. I mean, maybe there are people that can just go right away with 36 hours and feel fine. That's not most people. So I I think a strategy for long-term success is to go slow and keep increasing until you find a comfort level. And I would, before we move on to other areas, which I really want to discuss with you, quick question, since you mentioned that you fast for uh, hormone optimization, testosterone. So I'd love to know what exactly you meant by that. Uh, What is it doing for our hormones? Yeah, so it's improving all of our hormones. I mean, it's made my testosterone go higher. Um, it 
increases growth hormone, which helps regulate body composition, muscle growth, bone growth, sugar and fat metabolism, um, improves cellular repair, decreases insulin levels. Type two diabetes is when your insulin keeps going up and up and up and you're, it doesn't work anymore. So you're, it doesn't respond to your receptors. So you need more insulin. So fasting helps lower the insulin, um, increases your metabolic rate by causing you to burn more calories. Um, so, and then another huge one is it raises BDNF brain derived neurotrophic factor. They've done studies on people and the higher your BDNF levels, the lower your risk of dementia. So, and th there's not many ways to increase BDNF, but one of the best ways is fasting. So it affects so many different parts of your body positively um, that I, I've become very pro fasting. I love it, Dr. Cosen. Um, especially since you have written a lot about this, I want us to talk about the low FODMAP diet because I just came across somebody two days ago who mentioned to me that her daughter has been on the low FODMAP diet for two years for IBS and she's put herself on this diet and uh, it's obviously not been helpful. I don't know whether she didn't do it the right way. I feel this is a therapeutic diet which needs to be done short term while you do other things to help. I would like to know from you, first of all, is the low FODMAP diet something which can be done so long term? And what is the low FODMAP diet? Meaning, let's break some myths because there's a lot of information out there. And I truly believe some the layperson might not be able to discriminate between the right sources of information. So what's the right way to do it? And what does it actually involve? And also, do we need to be doing other things side by side to support the body while you uh, while we go through this low FODMAP diet? Yeah, so I, I definitely have a lot of opinions on this, so I'm happy to talk about it. Um, the, I think the, the first and most important thing is that a low FODMAP diet should be done as, as short as possible. It is not a long-term diet. Um, it is the diet, the reason that I use it is to treat SIBO, which is small intestine bacteria overgrowth. So in our gut, in that long tube, we have three to five pounds of bacteria growing in there. That's your microbiome. Those are your probiotics or should be your probiotics. Those bacteria should live in the last part of your gut, your large intestine. That's where they should live. And the most important thing to understanding FODMAPs and, and your microbiome, your gut bacteria are alive, just like you are. And just like you, they need to eat to survive. They eat fibers and sugars, and it's an anaerobic process. So without oxygen, so it creates gas. So if you eat a bunch of fiber and you get gassy, that's just your bacteria eating. So we want to be feeding our microbiome, right? So we, we don't want to be starving it. We want to be feeding it. Unless 
you have SIBO, small intestine bacteria overgrowth. Those gut bacteria have moved from your large intestine into your small intestine. They're now living in a place where there should not. The small intestine is where digestion happens. The small intestine is where 90% of absorption happens. So the small intestine's only 20 feet long, but there's 2000 square feet of absorptive surface. It's a huge area because it's lined with microvilli. When gut bacteria start moving into the small intestine, that creates horrible inflammation. And that is SIBO. So SIBO is something it's, I wrote a whole chapter on it in my book. It's the most common condition that I treat with gut health. It is bacteria overgrowing your small intestine. So one of the best ways to kill bacteria is to not feed them. That is what a low FODMAP diet is. You are not feeding your gut bacteria. So that is a great thing if you have SIBO. But for the long term, that's a disaster because you're not going to feed your microbiome in your large intestine. So I've rarely ever seen just a low FODMAP diet work. I use interventions like I usually use natural herbs um, like that are basically antibiotics to help kill those bacteria. Some of my patients want to use antibiotics from the pharmacy. So sometimes I use that. And so a SIBO treatment when I'm treating with antibiotics is two weeks when I'm treating naturally it's nine weeks. So at some point early on, I want people to start reintroducing FODMAPs whether that's after, if, if you're two weeks into treatment and you already feel like you're getting way better, then that's a good time to start trying foods. The big thing about SIBO is that every patient is different. It, it takes different amount of time, different treatment plan, different strategies to, to heal that. So I encourage people to just kind of listen to their bodies. And so if you're really missing garlic or onions, and you just really want to see if you can tolerate it, introduce it back in because we don't want to stay on this diet long-term. So it, in general, low FODMAP, it stands for basically highly fermentable foods, um, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. The main food groups is dairy. So most of dairy is high FODMAP. So that's, we want to cut it out. Um, some FODMAP lists say dairy is okay. I've seen enough problems with dairy that I tell my patients, no dairy. Nuts and seeds like almonds, cashews, sesame seeds, hazelnuts, pistachios. Those are foods that are high FODMAP. Avocados, my favorite food, chocolate, artichokes, asparagus, garlic, beans, mushrooms, onions, soy, apples, blackberries, cherries, mango. These are all high FODMAP foods. So these are the foods that we are cutting out in order to heal SIBO. 
Now I've seen a number of patients that have gone to GI doctors before me, your traditional GI doctor, and the GI doctor has told them, Hey, try this low FODMAP diet for IBS. I have no idea why it works, but sometimes people say it helps them. Well, it, it's because that person has SIBO. Mm -hmm. And if, and if you don't have SIBO, then the low FODMAP diet is not really going to make you feel any different. So it, it's like I said, I mean, I'm very passionate about it because SIBO is the most common thing that I work with. I wrote a whole chapter on it because there's so much misinformation out there about it. And the low FODMAP diet is fantastic as a short-term healing diet. And I also noticed, Dr. Koss, that some people who've, who've uh, tried this low FODMAP diet on themselves um, just as a way to help their gut issues, they don't eliminate alcohol. So is that something that needs to be removed when you're doing the work on the gut or is that a yes yes <laughs> alcohol is sugar and it, sugar feeds your microbiome so yeah. you're you're not going to get rid of SIBO <laughs> and your loaf you might as well be eating garlic all day if you're going to be drinking at night so I, I asked you this because I get this argument a lot and people just argue with me if I say alcohol is also a sugar. So I want someone to actually clarify that. It's a sugar. Yeah. And it's going to feed SIBO. Um, I would love for us. Especially to even worse about alcohol, like something like beer is fermented. Right. So it's got a bunch of bacteria too that are going to aggravate your SIBO even worse. So uh, yeah, alcohol is a no, but sorry, go ahead. Yes, I'd love for us to speak a little bit about how does the gut impact emotions and maybe our sleep, obviously, I'd love to speak a little about sleep. And then after that, we can wrap up the show with some practical takeaways and tools. Yeah, so the gut and the brain are connected right? And it is your, the, a lot of people call the gut your second brain. Well, this gut tube that we have is surrounded by its own nervous system called the enteric nervous system. There's over 200 million neurons in your gut nervous system, more than your brain has. So that nervous system is connected to your brain by one of your cranial nerves called your vagus nerve. The vagus nerve runs from your brain down to your gut and from your gut back to your brain. And so it's, it's like a two-way street that's constantly carrying information back and forth. When we send negative information from the brain down to the gut, we are shutting down our gut from working. The vagus nerve runs on your autonomic nervous system, your automatic nervous system, which happens in your subconscious. It can either be in sympathetic response, fight or flight, or parasympathetic rest and digest. So if we're needing to escape from a situation that's life-threatening, sympathetic nervous system should be activated. We are, our brain is telling our gut, hey, don't digest breakfast. You need to escape and all the blood's going to your brain and muscles. If we're relaxed and sitting with a meal in gratitude, and we are activating our parasympathetic nervous system. 
So we're sending signals from our brain to our gut that are saying, hey, digest this meal. And so people nowadays are living in the sympathetic response all the time. And so they're constantly telling their gut to not work. You don't make stomach acid. You don't digest food. Your gut bacteria can't grow. Your gut gets leaky. Those are all effects the brain can have on the gut. And, but at the same time, what we really look for is imbalances in your microbiome in, in your gut bacteria. So that can be SIBO, but also something like candida, which is a yeast that can overgrow your gut bacteria that can overgrow your gut parasites. When these, some of these bacteria or yeasts, they can actually block you from making dopamine, which makes you more anxious. So they're literally inhibiting your neurotransmitter production if you've got this negative overgrowth. So the, the big secret that I reveal in my book is that the key to your gut health is your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. But it is very much a two-way street. So people, when they work with me, they're working with me to um, address whatever's going on in the gut and get rid of that. Um, and at the same time, I encourage them to work on the mental, emotional, and spiritual side. Beautiful, doctor. And so if you could just give us some takeaways on, uh, I mean, if someone doesn't know if they have SIBO, but they're struggling with chronic gut issues, which means they're sensitive to a whole host of different foods, uh, how would you guide them to begin? I mean, I don't want them to just, as I mentioned, a lot of people who do these sensitivity tests and they just eliminate, 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 some, they never reintroduce. So just a way forward, maybe also with some, uh, the right way to approach food and supplementation and recovery to help the gut or rather to unfunk your gut? <laughs> um, yeah, the, the most important thing that anybody can do, I think is just to stay in the present moment. And I think so much of disease can be healed when we stay in the present moment. And everything in our society is taking us out of the present moment. We're constantly thinking about the future or the past, and we're not ever focusing on what's going on in front of us. The more we could stay in the present moment, the more active our gut's going to be. For somebody that's struggling, it, a great way to start if they haven't is a 21-day elimination diet with reintroduction. The recipes that I introduce in my book, so in my book, I talk about the symptoms of SIBO, which very much look like IBS symptoms. If what I've found over the years is somebody with SIBO that goes on an elimination diet can actually feel worse because they're eating more fibers and sugars than they were before that are feeding the microbiome. So the recipes that I introduce in my book, we call it the cause plan are elimination diet, but also low FODMAP friendly recipes. And that, that kind of diet should be done as short term as possible. And so you have to reintroduce foods unless the diet's just causing you absolutely no stress and you want to keep eating that way forever. But that's very, very rare. And I think one other concern that a lot of people have is that they, IBS is something that is 
quote-unquote diagnosed for almost everybody when they have gut issues and I know people who say who have labeled themselves as IBS for life and they've tried every system of medication Ayurveda, homeopathy, traditional allopathy, functional medicine maybe they haven't seen the right practitioner but it's been five to ten years and they're still struggling oh you've got such a beautiful dog behind you <laughs> there's mine as well um, but uh, so it's um, do you feel that IBS has become a sort of an umbrella term and people don't really know what's going on there Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a completely kind of ridiculous diagnosis. I mean, it, it's not a real, they don't, they don't tell you anything. They're basically like, you know, the way we're taught in regular medicine is, okay, you're having all these gut symptoms. I don't know why. So it's IBS. All the tests that I've run are negative. My experience is we find something in the microbiome, whether that's SIBO or candida or dysbiosis, um, that is the stuff that we find that we can heal IBS. But the biggest hurdle is people that do try um, Ayurveda and uh, functional medicine and traditional medicine, but they don't ever make their mental, emotional, and spiritual health the focus of their health. It's just which diet's going to fix me, which supplement's going to fix me, which doctor's going to fix me. None of that will ever work if you don't make the mental, emotional, spiritual side the most important part. I'm so glad you said that. If you could leave us with uh, maybe one recipe or something from your book, which we could get started while we get your book, that would be great. Something that would just help soothe our gut. Um, it depends on the person. I mean, something like if they're really struggling, just something like bone broth can be very soothing to the gut. Um, we focus our recipes mostly on elimination diet friendly foods. Um, so, you know, we, you know, some people follow vegan, some people are vegetarian, some people eat meat. So there's different recipes for everybody. So I don't know that I really have just one that I, I would say is like, this one's going to heal your gut kind of depends on where you're at and it's kind of exploring your diet which one's the best for you and you have details of the low FODMAP diet the right way in your book yes perfect yeah. i would like you to complete our show mantra before we conclude we have a show mantra if sleep is the new medicine then how would dr cause complete that for us sleep is the new medicine that will heal your gut. And when you heal your gut, your sleep will heal. So, or, you know, I could say it another way. Sleep is the medicine that will unfunk your gut because if you're sleeping well, we know your mental, emotional, and spiritual health is balanced, which I know then gives your gut a very good chance of, of healing. So the two things are very, very connected and, and sleep is when our body restores itself. So um, we need that time to heal from the day and prepare for the next day, including our gut. Dr. Koz, where can people find you? Where can they get access to your book? Um, my book is available with any kind of major printing site. So like Amazon or your major bookstores, um, wherever you normally buy books, 
they should be, they should have copies of my book. Um, so it's easy to find. It's unfunk with a C for functional medicine. So unfunk your gut. I have it listed on my website. My website is doc-cause.com, doc-koz.com. It's there. That's a way to get a hold of me. If somebody wants to work with me, that's the best way. But for people that can't work with me, just starting with my book, um, it's available on like Kindle or the ebook. Um, that's a great way to just learn more about this subject, learn how to do an elimination diet, learn how to do a low FODMAP diet, learn to assess how you're digesting, learn how to pretty much diagnose yourself with SIBO. So that, that would be my advice. Thank you for giving us your time today, Dr. Koss. It was a great conversation and we, I think, broke down a lot of common myths out there. So I'm really happy that we were able to speak about uh, all the things that we don't hear a lot about, the alcohol with the low FODMAP diet and the right way to do fasting. So it was great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or the professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help on your health journey, do seek out a qualified professional please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional it is in no way intended as medical advice or a treatment or cure for any condition be sure to always directly work with a qualified practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health condition. Be sure to subscribe to the Sleep Whisperer podcast on your favorite podcast app to get each episode as soon as it launches.